Please turn with me in your Bibles back to the first passage that we read together in the Old Testament Scriptures. We continue this afternoon in our exposition of the prophecy of Isaiah. We are in chapter 9 and at verse 6, considering these names of Christ. And we'll read again verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So this afternoon we'll be considering together these two descriptions, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. The divine glory of the Lord Jesus Christ lies at the center, the dead center of New Testament religion and apostolic preaching. Within the ancient church, in those early centuries after the apostles, there was no truth that was more emphasized or defended than this testimony that Christ is true God, and that God was manifest in the flesh. And what was true then is true now, and shall forever be so, wherever the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is found. The divine glory of Jesus Christ lies at the dead center of all that the church is. And there is nothing that arouses greater zeal, nothing that invokes greater ardency than contending for the glory of Jesus Christ as the one alone who is given all the preeminence in asserting this testimony that he indeed is true God and that he has been manifest, God manifest in the flesh. Well, it is that doctrine that is taught in these words that are before us, this description of Christ as the mighty God, the everlasting Father. We've seen already at the beginning of this verse that all that follows is a description of the incarnate Word. It is a description of the Son of God in His being enfleshed, in taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul. We're told that a child is born, that a son is given. And then we're told who will be and what will be like. We're told that by being given his name. Here is the name of this child, the son that is given. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. So we'll consider these, these two titles with the Lord's help this afternoon. First of all, the Mighty God. In the Hebrew, it is God, Mighty One. Right? God, the Mighty One. He is true God. And as the God-man, he is mighty, almighty, the omnipotent one, almighty God. We read from John chapter 1, where we have that verse that every child here should memorize. Uh, those who are learning Greek, it's probably the first verse that you learn and memorize uh, in your studies. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
the divine glory of Jesus Christ. We see it all through the New Testament in very overt places, like in Romans 9 and verse 5, whose are the fathers, and of whom, are, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Get the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Get the same thing in 1 John 5. And we have it in so many other different places. We even see it in, in very um, unexpected places. There's a, a beautiful, very thin little book written by one of our Free Church Fathers that uh, the Banner of Truth had republished on the divine glory of, of Jesus Christ by Charles J. Brown, one of the Disruption Fathers. And it's beautiful because rather than, I mean, the title is The Divine Glory of Christ, but rather than going to all the standard texts, he says, no, no, I want to show you how the divine glory of Christ is seen everywhere. And so he goes to very places you would pass over, and he focuses on that in that little book, these meditations where he's bringing out the divine glory of Christ. And it just illustrates my point that there is, the scriptures are suffused with this, with this theme. We know that the, the name Jehovah, which is the, the unique name that belongs peculiar uh, to God. We know that not only from what we're told in Exodus 3 and in uh, passages uh, that follow it, but we know because we sing in Psalm 83, uh, verse 18, that last verse, that men may know that thou whose name alone is Jehovah art the most high over all the earth. And yet this name Jehovah is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have all of these references like we saw a few chapters ago in Isaiah 6 where it is Jehovah that Isaiah beholds in all of his glory with his train filling the temple. And yet we go to the Gospel of John and discover Isaiah was seeing the pre-incarnate Christ. He was seeing the Son of God. Go to Joel 2, we see prophecies which are later, which reference Jehovah, which are in the New Testament uh, specified as references to Christ. The same thing where Jehovah is referred to in the Psalms and in the New Testaments that are attributed uh, to the Son. And we could multiply these if we wished. Jesus is Jehovah. Jehovah is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's given all the titles and attributes of God. He himself is eternal. He's independent of all. He is omnipotent, as we see here. The mighty God, he's everywhere present. He's all-knowing and immutable, unchangeable. All of these things ascribed to him, which can only be ascribed to one who is true God. Jesus Christ receives to himself divine worship. There are very wonderful and um, in many ways glorious servants of the Lord, prophets that were sent forth, who faithfully serve the Lord. We have angelic hosts who are, who are, who are servants, and they come and appear at the Lord's bidding and so on. They all refuse worship. They forbid it. But divine worship is ascribed to the Son, and he receives it willingly. He receives it from mere men whom he gladly would have to worship him. He receives it from the angels of heaven as the object of their worship as well. And he tells us those who honor the Son honor the Father. That in honoring the Son, we indeed honor the Father. We're baptized into his name. We, we pray to him as, as Stephen did, calling upon the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that is equal with the Father because he and the Father are one. Remember, God is so jealous. Second commandment, he's so jealous about his own person and worship and being and third commandment, his own name. And we're, we're told by the prophets that God will give, will not give his glory to any other. Never, ever, ever, ever will God share his glory with any other. And so in seeing Christ adorned with this glory, we see one who himself is God. But he is the mighty God, the mighty or almighty, omnipotent one. You know, we, we see in our own day, we read in history and so on, all the great heroes and the great exploits and the great feats that they've accomplished and the great strength of mind and body that they have demonstrated and so on. But they are all fledgling weaklings in contrast to the one who is mighty, who is all mighty. Here is the one in his works who creates the entire cosmos. What can compare to that? What can you liken to that? When you think of all of the great feats of men, when you think of even the collective work of men and their accomplishments and the greatest ones in the history of the world, what is any of that or all of that combined in contrast to the one who creates the cosmos by speaking it into existence? In contrast to the one who sustains the entire world. What kind of might is that? That keeps every leaf on every tree sustained in its existence. Every minuscule insect who grants every breath and heartbeat to every creature under heaven. Who holds the stars in place and the waters within their bounds. He's the sustainer of everything. He is the one who creates, makes alive. He's the one who kills. He's the one who raises the dead. He's the one, as he said in his earthly ministry, who is always about doing the works of his father. Because the father and he are one. And their works are undivided. He's the one who com has command over all of heaven. And over all of earth, what is an emperor, the greatest emperor, the most long-standing emperor, the, the one with the most far-flung empire in comparison to he who commands heaven and earth? He is the mighty God. And we see his might as the God-man, as the child born, as the son who is given. We see his might as the mediator and God-man, the infinite power that is displayed. We open the Gospels, we see his words and his works, we open the epistles and we understand all the implications and consequences that flow from that. And we're faced with power like no other, might like no other. How so? This Lord Jesus Christ is the one who answers the demands of a broken law on behalf of lawbreakers, on behalf of sinners. His might is seen in answering the demands of a broken law. 
No one can do this. No one has the might to do this. No one can pay this insurmountable debt. No one can ever exhaust it. No one is able to lift the weight of a broken law, of God's law. No one is able to do this work except for one, the one who is the mighty God. He is the one who destroyed sin, who brought the death blow to all sins, all the sins of all of the elect. The guilt of sin destroyed, the power of sin, the defilement of sin. He destroys it. Romans 6, verse 6 Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Speaking of the broken power of, of sin. Who is able to do this? No son or daughter of Adam has ever been able to do it. Who can resist sin to the utmost? Who is able to, to overcome it, to conquer it? Who is able to not sin? much less defeat sin. Here is one who is the mighty God. And he destroys sin. And it's manifest in the conversion of sinners. It's manifest in the ongoing sanctification of his people. It's manifest ultimately in their glorification on the last day. Sin vanquished as a defeated foe. This mighty God triumphs over death. Again, no one can do this. The rich and famous and powerful, the most astute intellectuals, the most skillful scientists, none are able to triumph over death. You can run and run and run and run, but you'll never outrun. You'll never outrun death. And with all of our attempts to extend life, in the end, it's defeated. We defeated by death, not us defeating death. None are able to destroy or triumph over death. But here is a son, here is a child born, here is a son that is given, and he is able to do what no other can. Hosea 13 verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O oh, death, I will be thy plagues. O oh, grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. This is the mighty God. None can break death's grip, but the Lord can, so that we are able to say, Death, where is now thy sting? Where is it? Here is the Lord who has defeated you. Isaiah 25, then God will swallow up death in victory. To swallow it whole. This is the mighty God. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He trounced the devil. The greatest arch enemy of all. The enemy of all enemies. The enemy of mankind. The enemy of creation itself. The enemy of God. The devil had conquered mankind in Adam. But here is the last Adam who comes to conquer the devil and to defeat him and all his host and to make an open show of them. The Lord humiliates the evil one. 
The Lord decimates the evil one. Every soul that is saved is plucked from his clutches, from his kingdom, from his dominion, from his tyranny, brought into the liberty of Christ. In the end, the devil is shut up, cast with the false prophet and the beast into that inferno, into the, into the, the sea of fire, everlasting darkness where he is bound forever under the torments of the wrath of Almighty God. He is the mighty God. Well, this ought to be, if understood, if seen as we ought to see it, it ought to be an absolute terror to Christ's enemies. It ought to be an absolute terror that men, organizations, governments, and other collectives of people should set their crosshairs upon Christ and his kingdom. For individuals to be set at enmity against God, this ought to be a terror. Why? Because he is the mighty God, which is to say he is invincible. He, by definition, cannot, has not, will not ever lose. He is the victor of all victors. Jesus tells us himself in Luke 19, verse 27, And those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. It ought to be a terror to the enemies of God's people. It ought to be a terror to false religions, persecutors, and all sorts of others. It ought to be a terror to those of you who are outside the Lord Jesus Christ this afternoon, who live and breathe right this moment under the wrath of God, and who are left to yourselves heaping up wrath for the day of wrath, to meet the one who is the mighty God, whose eyes burn like fire whose arm is invincible, to be brought before him to give an account and to receive the due judgment that is coming. But it ought to be a comfort to believers. And it's always a comfort to believers, especially when they find themselves in a low condition. What a comfort. We have the one who is the mighty God. All of the needs that we have, which seem so overwhelming, they mount up like Everest before us. We think this is impossible. We can't scale this. We can't cross this. We can't get around this. They seem innumerable. If we were to count them, we would spend all our days counting the numbers of needs that we have. All of the struggles and difficulties and challenges and so on and so forth. The Lord comes and he says, never hopeless. It's never hopeless. Left to our resources, sure. But we're not left to our resources. We have the mighty God. And so there is great hope. The Lord is able to undertake to do absolutely everything in every detail that we ever stand in need of in the service of him. In the worship of him. In, in seeking first his kingdom. 
There's consolation there. He is our strength. To say that his power is made perfect in our weakness or to say that the Lord is our strength is not just comparative weakness to comparative strength. We're saying our weakness is incomparable to his infinite strength. When we say he is our strength, we're saying he is the mighty God. He is the one who is limitless and infinite in his power. How does that match our weakness? And so we're led to kiss him, to kiss this son, to adore and embrace and pay homage and worship and bow and serve and love this child that is born, this son that is given. Because we have two, two things before us, don't we, in this? For the believer, he is mighty for you. If God be for us, who can be against us? He is mighty for you. But on the flip side, he is mighty against you if you refuse him in unbelief and in disobedience. Oh, my dear friends, that we would not refuse him, that we would never refuse him, that we would not wait to behold his power as in wrath it is poured out upon our bodies and souls, but rather that we would come on his terms in the gospel as they are offered so freely to us and to see that power demonstrated in the salvation of our souls and in all of the saving good that he provides for those who come to him. He is the mighty God. Secondly, he is the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. So far, so good. Most of us, we read, we come to this passage and we're reading along, we can affirm it, we can see it. But then we come to this name, the everlasting Father, and some stumble at this point and begin to tie themselves in knots and get confused a bit. What's, what's happening? Uh, I thought we were talking about Christ at the beginning of the psalm, and now there seems to be a switch in the reference. Now we're talking about God the Father. So it was God the Son, and now we're talking about God the Father. But, but, the fa but we know that the Father is distinct, is a distinct person from God the Son, and we can't say that they're both the same person, and so what do we do of this? And it seems confusing to some when, when you first come to it. But it's, it's not as confusing as you think. The answer is simple. Yes, as we see at the beginning of verse 6, this is the Son that is being referred to. This is God the Son. Uh, this is the incarnate Word, the God-man that is in view, as distinct from God the Father. But it's not confusing the persons of the Godhead to refer to the Son as the Everlasting Father. This is a very appropriate name for the Son. He is the second person as God the Son. Father is the first person as God the Father. But we're talking about the name of the Son, not the person of the Father. And the name of the Son includes Everlasting Father as the incarnate Word. So think with me. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is the elder brother of his people. The Lord Jesus Christ is the heavenly husband of his people. The Lord Jesus Christ is the friend of his people. He is the Lord of whom we are servants as his people. But he is also presented to us in a fatherly capacity and as a fatherly figure. And you know this because we, we've, we've seen it in our study of, of the book of Hebrews in the morning. As the mediator, as the God-man, how is, how is he described in, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13? And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Right? That's the language, the speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's speaking of his people as his children. It's the language of father. His children, which the father has has given to him. Or you think of that well-known chapter that many of you have, have memorized in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We sing about this in the Psalms where Jesus speaks, where, where the Psalm speaks about Christ having a seed that is given to him. Again, children that are, that are given to him. A posterity that belongs, a spiritual posterity that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that, that the believer is of his flesh and of his, of his bones. We're told that we are begotten of him. Right? We're begotten of him in new life. And in a new nature. We're told that we bear his image. Even as children bear the image of, of a father. All of, these, all of these descriptions, which I'm listing one after another, dovetail with the name Everlasting Father. That Christ, in his capacity as mediator, also serves in a fatherly capacity toward his children. Right? We bear his image. We're conformed to his holiness. We have the image of Christ as the image of the Father. And so we are brought thereby through him into likeness. The image of God, right? The, through redemption, knowledge and righteousness and holiness conformed to his likeness. Paul says this in Romans 8 when he says that we're predestined to what? Predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. We're also conformed to him in other capacities. We're conformed to him in his sufferings. We're conformed to him in his sufferings. We have a share in his sufferings. And of course, this is part of the Lord's means that he uses, our sufferings are destructive of sin. Right? The, the, these sufferings are sanctified by the Spirit, are used to, to produce holiness, to loosen us in our attachments to this world, to strengthen 
our attachments to Christ, to reveal things in us as we're put into the crucible and heated up and the dross is brought to the surface so that it can be mortified. It's to the ruin of sin. And it is this cross that leads, of course, to the crown. And so the Lord Jesus Christ has a name which includes the everlasting Father. So we see Father is appropriate in this, in this, in this place and in this sense, not, not um, confusing our categories, right? No category confusion. We're speaking about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not conflating the personal distinctions between the Father and the Son. But you'll note that it says everlasting Father. In other words, he serves his people as, his, as the mediator. He serves his people in this fatherly capacity, and it is never interrupted. It is everlasting. So it can never be lost, because who he is can never be lost. That's so different from our, our ordinary experience, right? Grandfathers die. Fathers die. We place them in the ground. They are here no more. That is not so of the everlasting Father. Never lost, never interrupted, never ended. Indeed, it's not just in time that we have an everlasting, Him as an everlasting Father, but it is into all eternity so that you know, Paul is beside himself at the end of Romans 8, and he's saying, look, he's pulling everything he can from stuff outside this world, looking at everything he can inside this world, the big stuff and little stuff, and he's saying there's nothing, nowhere of any kind that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It endures even into all of eternity. This everlasting Father is the best of all fathers. Perfectly, flawlessly loving, perseveringly compassionate. We have fathers in this world, even the most godly of them, they're loving sometimes and not loving at other times. Compassionate sometimes, devoid of sympathy at others. Not so with the Lord Jesus. We've been hearing a lot about his sympathetic and compassionate high priesthood in the morning, and it is something sustained there's nothing that can happen in the world. There's nothing that can happen in our little world, our life. There's nothing that, that, that we can do or that can be done to us that any way diminishes his compassion for his people. Even our sin cannot extinguish his compassion. Indeed, his sympathy is manifest in the context of sin. David wished but couldn't die for his rebellious son, Absalom. But the Lord Jesus Christ does die for all of his rebellious sons and daughters. And he dies as a substitute in order to secure their redemption. And so here we are able, the, the Lord's people are able to find help in all of our needs, 
right? Right to the very end. You know, we've seen people swept out of this world over the last few days, the youngest and the oldest. And it makes you think about the culmination of life in this world, the termination of life in this world. And among other things, I mean, there's so many things, dozens and dozens of things that end up coursing through our hearts and minds and meditations and so on. But we're often inclined to put ourselves in in the place of those who have gone on and think, what? We've never done this before. We've done a lot of stuff. A lot of things have happened to us, but we've never died. We don't know what that entails. And we don't know what the circumstances surrounding it will entail, leading up to it. Spiritually, physically, all sorts of things, what pain will be involved, what all these things, we don't know. But we know this, the end of Psalm 48, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. So that the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a tender and everlasting Father, will be there when it's time to cross the great divide. And when we wade into those waters to cross that river, however deep and tumultuous they may be, it is Christ who will buoy up his believing people and see them safely to the other side. We know it. We know it for certain. We can be absolutely confident of it. And knowing that, we know all we need to know. All the unknowns about death are drowned in the one thing we do know, and that is Christ will be there with us, not leaving us, not forsaking us, sustaining and escorting us across that river. He is the everlasting Father. He is the one who is the richest of all riches, richest people. Mansa Musa is supposed to be the richest person that's ever lived. Middle Ages in what is now modern Mali. His wealth is absolutely staggering to read the accounts of. He was a poverty-stricken stricken beggar in comparison to the God of glory comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the abundance. What is not his? That's the question. Right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The cosmos belongs to him. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his. Time and eternity, heaven, earth, it's all his. And he says that he who has secured the salvation of his people has in doing so secured an eternal heavenly, indiminishable inheritance which is reserved for us in heaven beyond the reach of all that is corruptible, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. How? 
because we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. Because in being brought into union with him, all that is his becomes ours. And that we have a share in all that belongs to him. And his poverty results in us being enriched through him. And so he bequeaths in this, in this way as an everlasting father a rich inheritance. He's all wise. Fathers, godly fathers do their best to give good counsel and sound counsel and to draw on seasoned experience and their knowledge of the word of God and their knowledge of providence and so on and so forth. And that's good and right and important. But how flawed and limited and how unable the father is to see. There's so much he can't foresee in being able to convey wisdom. But here is one who is infinitely wise, the all-wise God. What a comfort this is. It's a comfort to the fatherless. For those who haven't ever had a father, for those who have lost their fathers, what a consolation it is to be able to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and to call upon his name as the everlasting father being his seed, whom he will present with himself in glory. In, in him the fatherless findeth mercy, right? The end of, what is that, Hosea 14. In him the fatherless find mercy. In all of our sense of helplessness, here is our help. Here is access with boldness. Here is access, as we heard this morning, with liberty. Here is bounty upon bounty. Here is, here is love and pity like no other. There are those who, who love us dearly, but can't, can't convey the pity that they wish. There are those who pity us in a degree, but don't love us as, as they wish or ought. Here we find one, Psalm 103, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. It goes on, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children. To such as keep his, his covenant. Here is the pity. Another angle, if you will, in which we see something of the, the pity of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. He is able, we've seen that he's the mighty God, but even as everlasting father, he's able to protect in ways that no other can. The devil would sift us as wheat. Christ prays for us. And the devil fails in his ambitions. The world desires to swallow us, swallow us up. And the Lord breaks the teeth of the world and slams their mouths shut and prevents it. Our own, stupid, our own stupidity and sin would destroy us from within. But the Lord mortifies that sin. He protects us. He protects us physically as well as spiritually. What a wonderful thing it is to think of Christ's name as the ever 
lasting Father, not only the one who is God, one God with the Father and the Spirit, but as the God-man who comes in his fatherly disposition toward us. And so we're left, aren't we here? We're left with something of the divine glory set before us in the person of Jesus Christ. His divine glory is seen in that he's the mighty God. His divine glory is seen in the fact that he is the everlasting Father. Both of these are pushing to the forefront his divine glory, that he is true God, that, that what we are beholding in the Gospels is truly God manifest in the flesh. But we're left with this. He is either the everlasting Father to us, or he is the righteous exacting judge to us. Right? He, for his people, comes as an everlasting Father. He's judge there too. He's judge of all flesh, all men, believers and unbelievers. But for those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing in this name that comes from which they can benefit. So that as judge, all that is faced is the consequences that flow in the wake of our sin. And so the Lord comes in the gospel and he's driving us out of every little hidey hole that you try to bury your head in. Everywhere you try to conceal yourself, every distraction that you try to, 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 to cultivate, the Lord is stripping it away and stripping it away. The Lord is shining his light, exposing the darkness. The Lord is chasing you out from one bush after another both in terms of the warnings of his coming judgment as well as the wooings of his tender mercies to receive pitiful sinners like you. My friends, we need to take refuge in him. We need to come and to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To look even from the ends of the earth and to call in faith upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by this name alone that sinners are saved. And when we call upon that name, when we find refuge in that name, when we come to receive and lay hold of and rest upon all that Christ is and all that he's accomplished, when we esteem his name, it includes this. He is the mighty God who is able to save to the uttermost. And he is the everlasting Father who throws open the doors and his arms to receive us and to bless us for his glory and for the good of our immortal souls. The divine glory of Jesus Christ seen in being the mighty God and the everlasting Father. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come in this name, through this name, the name which is above every other name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the name which includes mighty God, everlasting Father. And we pray, grant that we would be led through him, to him, that we would be found in him,
and that by the saving mercies of the gospel we would live for him. Lord, grant that he would be esteemed in our hearts and minds, that we would gladly render our worship to him, that we would gladly serve him, and and with all of our hearts love him. Give us these things by the Spirit, through thy irresistible grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.